Welcome back to the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. As a former supper club host, I'm always intrigued to know what people like to eat. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to contribute a dish to the season's virtual potluck supper, inspired by today's topic. In season two, my guests and I will be exploring our complex relationship with chocolate to coincide with the release of my latest book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, published by the British Library. Bring with a noise, my merry, merry boys, the Christmas log to the firing. While my good dame, she bids ye all be free and drink to your heart's desiring. With the last year's brand, like the new block and for good success in his spending, on your sultry's play that sweet luck may come while the log is attending. These lines are from Hesperides by 17th century poet Robert Herrick. For hundreds of years, there was a tradition across Europe of burning a large piece of wood over the 12 days of Christmas. This was the original Yule log. It was lit on Christmas Eve using a piece of the previous year's log, then rekindled each day until Twelfth Night was reached. This ritual probably had its origins in pre-Christian fire festivals celebrating the winter solstice and the return of the sun. There was much superstition attached to this custom. In some parts of Britain, it was considered bad luck if a squinting person or flat-footed woman entered the room in which it was burning. The most widely held belief was that if a portion of the charred jewel log was kept in the house after the festive period was over, it would protect the property from lightning strikes over the coming year. This ritual has largely faded from our memories. But now the Yule Log lives on in cake form, known in France as the Bouche de Noël, which, let's face it, sounds way more glamorous. Today, I will be discussing the enduring popularity of the dessert version of this Christmas tradition with American baker and author of Sweet Paris, Frank Adrian Barron, who you may know from Instagram as at Paris. We'll also be talking about how this dessert has evolved and the secret to making a great Bouche de Noël, aside from going out and buying a pre-made one, of course. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you very much for joining me today. I love your book, Sweet Paris. I think it's got some utterly stunning recipes in there. I mean, it makes me so hungry when I flick through the pages. And there are, of course, lots of chocolate recipes in there, which we'll come to later. But why do you love baking? What is it about baking that you adore so much? Well, I'm actually a late in life baker. I didn't start my baking journey until I moved to Paris in 2012. So up to that point, I always had a sweet tooth and I've always loved cake and baked goods. But it wasn't until I got here that as sort of an expat in Paris, I started originally to bake out of 
the idea of nostalgia. I think I was just missing home after that first year of being in France. And you really couldn't uh, at the time, and actually still today, kind of easily go find something like a layer cake, which is what I was craving, just like a good old fashioned chocolate layer cake, a little buttercream frosting. And that was still pretty exotic here in Paris to be able to go out and find. So I, of course, realized, wow, if I want to eat this, I need to bake it myself. And so that kind of started the ball rolling on my baking life. And it was rough going, to say the least, at the beginning. <laughs> it, I had to go out, of course, and buy all the baking utensils one might need to, to make a cake, which I didn't have any of that. So I think that that first few times that I attempted to bake a cake, I was really proud of myself after sort of following a recipe and it actually came together. And whether or not it looked exactly like the photo in the recipe didn't matter because I succeeded. Um, and of course, the best part was I got to eat the creation at the end of all of this work that went into making it. So I think that sense of accomplishment and also just that nostalgic sort of taste that I was able to experience, which is what propelled me to continue to bake and want to get better at it. So I'm guessing the Parisians, they're more pastry based, are they? Sort of uh, patisserie. Absolutely. So on the subject of seasonality, I noticed that the book follows the seasons, which I think is quite a different approach to most baking books. Each section of the book is a season of the year and then you finish with celebrations. Why did you take that approach to presenting the book and your bakes? Um, I think mostly it was from sort of my introduction to France when I moved here from California, which is not specifically a very seasonal place. We <laughs> have a pretty, as everybody knows around the world, California, especially Southern California, where I grew up in San Diego, it's 70 degrees year round. And we have pretty much everything we could want in terms of, of produce and fruits all year round. When I moved to France, it was the winter of 2012 in January. And I remember being really shocked going to the markets and not being able to find strawberries, for example. And I just was like, what's going on here? I don't understand. There are no strawberries and certain fruits that I was looking for. And I remember asking famously a woman at one of the farmer's markets, and she was just outraged that I would even think to ask for strawberries in January. And <laughs> she was like, Monsieur, it's, you know, it's winter time. You have to wait until the spring for the strawberries to come. And I was just like, wow. So for me, it really was a totally different way of eating and a way of living that I wasn't used to. So I think that sort of my story of sort of learning how to appreciate the seasons and living for the first time in a place that had seasons that were very contrasted to each other and new things would show up at the markets, of course, as the seasons would change. So in the beginning, it was definitely a culture shock and for me. But of course, fast forward 10 years later, and I absolutely celebrate the seasons as one should. There are a number of chocolate recipes in the book, and it just goes to show, I think, how versatile chocolate can be across the seasons. So what is it about chocolate that makes it so versatile in baking? Well, that is an interesting point because when I was creating recipes and developing recipes for all the seasons, of course, the first thing I would think of is like, well, what's at the markets in um, summer? Of course, this is like the time for the berries and all the gorgeous strawberries and all the varieties. And of course, I kept thinking to diversify some of the recipes because we can't have 15 strawberry recipes. 
So one of the ingredients that, of course, we all love and bakers absolutely adore is chocolate. And chocolate, of course, I love this, is evergreen. And it's, you know, gorgeous all year round. And I think there's so many, as you pointed out, so many variations one can do with chocolate. It can be incorporated into so many things and it pairs well with so many different seasonal ingredients. I tend to be, I guess, incorporating chocolate into my diet more in the cozier seasons, like fall and winter, a la hot chocolate, obviously, my favorite. So would you consider yourself to be a chocolate lover? Absolutely, yes. I always keep chocolate on hand at home in the kitchen for snacking chocolate. I have my baking chocolate in the pantry at all times, just in case I'm going to incorporate it into something. I love to talk to people about single origin chocolates, for example, and that's sort of a big conversation right now in Paris. There's a lot of new chocolatiers that are focusing on single origin chocolates as sort of a highlight. And that's always interesting to talk about and comparing it to things like uh, coffee tasting or wine tasting. And of course, the French love the idea of the terroir mm. or like the earth of where it comes from. It's just exciting to talk about that in terms of chocolate, Venezuelan chocolate versus Indonesian chocolate, for example. So I definitely consider myself a big chocolate fan. I love plum pudding, but it appears a lot of people prefer a lighter, more elegant dessert at Christmas, opting for a Yule log or Bouche de Noël. But how did we get from a large chunk of charred tree to a sophisticated dessert? As with so many creation theories in the culinary world, exactly who first made it and when the Bouche de Noël was invented is a bit of a mystery. Trompe dishes designed to deceive the eye had been knocking around for centuries. Think of the golden apples served at the coronation feast of King Henry IV of England in 1399, which were actually large meatballs coated in a saffron-tinted batter, or fake entrails made from dried fruits and also battered. The first printed recipe for Bouche de Noël appears in Le Memorial Historique et Géographique de la Pâtisserie, published by French pastry chef Pierre Lacam in 1890. Although Lacam tells us very little about the origin of this dessert, he latterly revealed that it had been invented by fellow pastry chef Antoine Charabot in 1879. Charabot had worked at the famous Pâtisserie Quillette, which was credited with inventing French buttercream, a rich icing made from egg yolks, sugar syrup, butter and flavouring, which is usually part of the classic Bouche de Noël. Lacam's Bouche de Noël recipe is made from rounds of Genoise, a light sponge cake containing butter, sandwiched together with coffee or chocolate-flavoured buttercream. Knots or small branches were cut from pieces of Genoise and attached to the main log. The ensemble was decorated with buttercream using a fluted nozzle to create the effect of bark. Although chocolate sponge is frequently used today to create Yule logs, in the 19th century a plain or vanilla sponge was more common. The woodland effect would be further enhanced with the addition of moss in the form of finely chopped pistachios or green marzipan pressed through a sieve, with a further flourish of meringue mushrooms. By 1886, the Bouche de Noël was considered the height of festive culinary fashion in Paris. 
food writer Michael Crondall, who you may remember from the earlier episode this series on Sasha Tort, notes in his book Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, that serving lavish desserts was also a way of demonstrating the taste and discernment that now substituted for an aristocratic bloodline as a sign of breeding. The Paris of the Belle Epoque, the period between 1870 and 1914, was considered the epitome of elegant living, artistic prowess and pleasure, and the bourgeoisie dictated what was in vogue. Visitors from across the globe graced the elegant boulevards designed by housemen and marvelled at the Eiffel Tower. It is hardly surprising then that the penchant for illusion desserts spread across Europe and further afield. The Germans and Italians have their own versions of the Yule Log. You can even find a variation of the Bouche de Noël in former French colonies such as Vietnam. The Bouche de Noël, let's talk about that. Why is it an essential part of Christmas in France? Because this is where it originates. Ooh, you know, you're 100% right in that. It's a very traditional French thing because... Growing up in the States, I definitely had never had a Yule log at Christmas time or knew about its popularity until I moved here and basically saw that it was a, I guess, an ever, always a part of everybody's Christmas meal, or as they call it here, the Réveillon de Noël, which is the feast of Christmas. There are two Réveillons around this kind of festive time. There's the Réveillon de Noël and then the Réveillon de Nouvel An, which is the New Year's Eve feast. Christmas feast is a little bit more sort of for the family, of course, but that's where the Bouche de Noël would be present on the table. And it's just a Christmas staple. I think that I would be very curious to find out. I've never really asked why it's included in in the, in the feast every year, but there seems to be no question that there will be some type of bouche on the table after the, the feast is over as part of sort of the dessert portion. And of course, it should be said that the bouche noel is usually not the only sweet thing on the table. There's usually a selection of sweet things and the bouche is part okay, of it. Okay, I know in Provence, then they do the thing with 13 desserts. Is that right. quite local, localised to Provence, or is that across France? I think that is a very Provencal uh, approach, but all the Christmas parties and Réveillon Christmas dinners I've been to in Paris there have not been 13. However, I would not have been angry at that. But there usually seems to be a, a few different options for desserts. And the bouche is sort of the centerpiece. And I think that we'll get into sort of like the evolution of the bouche de Noël. But certainly the classic Yule log is in the shape of the log. The From what I've been told and what I've seen... The like extremely sort of classic flavor combination seems to be chocolate with just a simple Chantilly whipped cream. So a chocolate sponge maybe filled with the whipped vanilla whipped cream. So I think that's like the most sort of like simple thing that I've seen. I am delighted to hear you talk about the vanilla sponge being more classic because I'm actually more of a vanilla sponge fan. So I think while I do love chocolate, as we've established, I think when it comes to cake, I just tend to probably reach more to a vanilla cake if I had to choose. But again, like the classic bush uh, or Yule log that I've seen has just been a vanilla or chocolate with whipped cream. So very simple. Originally, it was because... The idea was that you cut through the bark, being the icing, 
being a darker color and it revealed the wood inside which hence the reason oh. they it it was supposed to literally look like a log i know in britain it's usually we call it a chocolate swiss roll covered in chocolate it actually quite often recipes now it's ganache rather than uh, butter icing but we will come back to butter icing in a moment what's the secret to making a good bouche de noel i mean for me we're uh, it's of course taste is paramount getting that beautiful kind of combination for me of something that isn't too sweet and something where the cake or the sponge is that beautiful gorgeous soft sort of like genoise sponge cake that's for me kind of that taste element is the most important and then of course the look of the cake i actually really love a classic sort of very literal yule log I love when I see, you know, the uh, marzipan mushrooms decorated on the side or, you know, there's like sometimes you'll see people do like uh, moss around the Yule log, which is consisting of pistachio powder and something that looks really much like this little log found just on the forest floor. (laughs) I find that very enchanting. It's uh, I love it. But of course, we have gone through lots of different design uh, evolutions when it comes to the Bouche de Noël at least here in Paris. I'm interested to hear that because you've picked quite modern flavours, I think, for your Bouche de Noël in your book. You went for white chocolate and cassis, which I think is a fabulous combination, actually, because I I like the idea of the cassis not being too sweet. So what made you choose cassis then and white chocolate, which, again, is quite controversial because is it chocolate or is it? Yes. I am maybe going to just like scandalize my my chocolate audience here, but I like white chocolate. I grew up eating white chocolate or white chocolate bark, as we would call it. And I know that it's very, very sweet. And of course, that question of is it chocolate, is it not chocolate comes up. I associate white chocolate with Christmas and white chocolate with sort of this festive time, New Year's Eve, winter. I love the combination of white chocolate and cranberry. Um, again, that hardness with the super sweet of the white chocolate. And so instead of incorporating the cranberries in the, my Bouche de Noël for my book, I decided that black currant or cassis would be really lovely. That's a jam that I absolutely love to eat on its own. It's so tart, as you mentioned. And I just thought it would be a nice little flavor surprise inside of such a sweet wrapped white chocolate bouche. I did decide with my recipe to have a more modern flavor combination, but I wanted to keep it looking more traditional. So I kept it in that log shape. And I did try to incorporate some of the little magical elements on the side, like the sugared cranberries to decorate. And there are meringue mushrooms dipped in chocolate. So I got to incorporate some classic chocolate in there, which I say are all optional because a bouche de Noël is quite time consuming to make. And I think this is one of the recipes that I, in my head note, I do warn bakers out there, baker beware. It says baker baker beware, this (laughs) recipe is not for the faint hearted, which is going to come on to my next question. Do people in France make their own? Because it's something you suggest you you make over several days. It's not something you set out. You don't get up in the morning and go... I'm going to make Frank's Bouche well and make every element of it there and then to serve that. Well, you could do, I guess, but it, I think you'd be baking pretty much on an awful day. I would be incredibly impressed if you woke up in the morning and decided you were just going to make this cake the night of a dinner party. 
I do think that most modern, again, I've never lived outside of Paris, so I can't comment for the rest of France and what they're doing in Lyon or uh, Bordeaux, but certainly in Paris, I think most Parisians buy their Bouche de Noël because we have so many options. I mean, this is the time of year where every single neighborhood boulangerie, their windows will just be filled with the most beautiful Bouche de Noël and many different flavor options. Then you get to the next tier, which of course are the palace hotels here in Paris, who all try to outdo each other with fabulous over-the-top Bouche de Noël uh, creations. So, and you can always order them, even if you're not a hotel guest at, let's say, the Ritz or the Georges Cinq. Then you can. They all uh, every year will do a Christmas boutique where you can go and place your order for your Bouche de Noël and pick it up at the hotel or even have it delivered to your house. So. I do think most people yeah. uh, buy them, whether it's uh, at a five-star luxury bouche de Noël or if it's at you know a simpler, more humble local neighborhood bakery. Both equally lovely, just apples and oranges. I've only been to a few parties over the years where somebody actually made it from scratch, and I was yeah. always impressed. Well, it is, it's an <laughs> impressive thing to make in Britain. We still have Christmas cake, although I think. The Bouche de Noël is increasing in popularity. Certainly the market supermarkets will have Bouche de Noël or variations of, which we are going to come back to this, how it has evolved. But it is becoming an increasingly popular dessert. And I think increasingly so, people are less likely to make one unless they do keep it, as you say, very, very simple. And I was going to actually, that's interesting because I was going to add that I think here in France, Bouche de Noël still is a beloved dessert. I've not met anybody who said they didn't like Bouche de Noël, unlike maybe Christmas pudding, which maybe, you know, people are like, oh, uh, the Bouche seems to yeah. still be beloved. And, you know, which is interesting into your whole story of like, why is its popularity is still not waning and people love it. And it's, again, always expected to be there on the Indeed. table. Indeed. What are the pitfalls of making your own bouche de Noël if you were going to set out and make one? Well, besides the prep time that you, one would need to set aside, as I mentioned in my recipe, at least a few days in advance start to prepare some of the elements of the cake. The sort of baker beware warning does pertain more specifically to the actual sort of technique of a Swiss roll, which is rolling your Genoise sponge cake into that classic shape of the log. There are lots of tips and tricks out there on the internet and, and in books and everybody. I mean, I did a lot of research myself when I was you know, working on my recipe. And Samantha, I have to tell you, there were tears involved, many tears when I was testing my own Bouche de Noël. It was not perfect from day one. And I did many, many tests. And specifically, this technique of rolling the cake right out of the oven when it's warm, oftentimes in a tea towel that's been dusted with icing sugar for it to kind of get into its shape that it's going to eventually be in. There were just a lot of cake breaks, shall we say, and your heart just, you know, melts because you just put all this time into this recipe. And then this essential part of the cake is no longer able to be used. There are some people out there and I, I, I'm sure it'll still work where it's like, okay, just fill it with whipped cream, cover it in ganache or frosting and you'll be fine. And that definitely is 100% correct. You will eat it, it'll be delicious still. But in order to get that sort of really clean cut when you cut the log and you have that gorgeous swirl inside obviously the cake 
cannot be broken before you do that. So I think that's the part that can be frustrating and a little challenging for some bakers, especially home bakers. Um, I consider myself a home baker. So I think that I wanted to include and I had to include a recipe of the Bouchonnoir in my winter chapter, of course. I absolutely wanted to celebrate it because I do love it. And I love all the different flavor combinations that one can do. I very much wanted to include that little warning at the beginning because I know how frustrating it can be when you go out and buy all these expensive ingredients and the cake doesn't work out. I understand. I, I totally do. So I wanted to just make sure people knew that this might be uh, not for the faint-hearted, as I said, and to give it a go because when you when it does work and the cake comes out and it's just such a nice feeling that especially when you serve it to your guests and everybody loves it. And so that was, it was well so worth I'm intrigued tears. because I've read lots and lots of recipes for Bouche de Noël. And some say, like you, that you roll it up when it's pretty much fresh out the oven in the tea towel. And some say, leave it till it gets completely cold before, and then do, you literally don't do anything with it until it's cold. So did you try both? So here's what I, my little hot tip for the bouche. My success rate was to actually not roll it as soon as it got out of the oven. I actually let it cool for about 10 to 12 minutes. Then I rolled. For me, that seemed to be the magic time marker. Is that unfi- was that break. filled or unfilled? Well, mine was, un- I rolled it unfilled to get into that shape and then unrolled, then filled with the filling. So that was my success that I had with the cake. However, I do remember a few rants in the kitchen, like, I'll never make this cake again. This cake is just that because I was just so stressed about it. And of course, like with anything more practice and practice and practice, and I got more confident with it. And I felt confident enough to include it in the book. So buttercream, in the part of your introduction to Sweet Paris, you talk about buttercream because the the French aren't very keen on, I mean, you call it American buttercream, but it's the same sort of recipe we would use in the UK for the most part. What sort of buttercream is the best buttercream to use? Because if you look back at recipes, again, it's quite often there a buttercream, the icing or the coating is for a Yule log is buttercream based. Which one would you say is the best to use? I ended up uh, discovering a buttercream that I, when I started to bake cakes here, um, that I did not grow up eating, but it's Italian meringue buttercream. Now, I first few cakes that I made for cafes here in Paris, I used classic American buttercream, which is essentially butter, icing sugar, and maybe a splash of vanilla and milk um, or cream. That's what I grew up eating. That's what we love. It's extremely sweet. I understand. Those first few cakes I made, a lot of the uh, French customers or European customers were like scraping the buttercream off the plate. And at the end of the day, I would go and ask the cafe owner, how did my cake do today? How did it go? And he was like, oh, the Americans loved it. You know, our expat customers loved it. But the uh, locals were scraping off the frosting. They thought it was much too sweet. And of course, I was horrified. And I was like, okay, back to the buttercream drawing board. I started to research other types of buttercreams that weren't as sweet as the American stuff. And of course, that's when I discovered Italian meringue. And it's a little more intense to make than classic American buttercream. You have your egg whites that you need to whip up into a meringue. And then you have this hot sugar syrup. That's an element that goes into it. But when I first started to make it, I was really pleased with it is significantly less sweet. So I actually, that's what I use in the Bouchonola recipe for me. And I think that it's 
great because it's very forgiving as a buttercream when you're using it to froth a cake with, and you can continue to go over and over and over and not worry it's going to get too hard, too fast, or break. And again, there's the taste that it doesn't overpower any other flavors that are there. And there's it's so versatile, you can you can actually add chocolate to it to make chocolate Italian buttercream. I've put a chestnut paste and made like a chestnut buttercream. You do have a recipe in the book, though, don't you, for a classic American buttercream for your vanilla celebration cake? There I go. I managed to squeeze one in. And I think I did even say something about how I had to make this as a classic American buttercream. I've got, I've been asked many times, like as a baker, what are my, my, what's my favorite cake of all time? And I always tell people I hate to be so boring, but it's vanilla on vanilla. Ah, one of well done vanilla cake. It, it's just nothing to me. It's just the best. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know why people say think vanilla is boring oh. because it's really not. Um, and is uh, even as a product, if you think about it, it's got very exciting sort of provenance history, whatever you want to call it. So I, yeah, I, friends, I agree with Samantha, you. Yes, I agree. <laughs> should people go to the effort of making their own Bush dinner world? Do you think? You know, I think that definitely the feeling of accomplishment is really one that cannot be replicated when you go out to buy uh, a Bouche Noel or any kind of dessert. Um, and certainly what I love about being able to make your own is that you can make any flavor combination that you love. For example, if you wanted to make something that was extremely vanilla, for example, you could put real vanilla beans into your Bouche de Noël and do all kinds of extra fun things that you may not get from a shop. So at the end, I think that your guests always appreciate something homemade. I know I do when I go to a dinner party and everything has been homemade or the cake is homemade. And it's just always another, a lovely element to hosting and to incorporating something that was handmade for your guests. So I think that it's always a lovely gesture uh, to make something from scratch. The bouche has evolved, hasn't it? Well, you can go out and buy some wonderful classic bouches in Paris and indeed across the world. But in certain places, the bouche has gone to the nth extreme. <laughs> it doesn't even look like a bouche. We have rocking horses. I think that was uh, Maxime Frederic last year. Oh. Um, and I've seen fans. I think that was one of the, the hotels produced that last year in Paris and palaces and all sorts of creations in the name of bouches but can we really call the bouches <laughs> they don't look like a, a bouche that is a very complicated question there i think uh traditionalists certainly would not call those cakes bouche de noel by definition bouche de noel the yule log is you know that classic shape of of a log or a tree stump or in all of these kinds of elements around it. But we have come so far away from that today. And like some of the examples you mentioned, in the fall, every year in Paris, there starts to be the previews of the coming Bouche de Noëls, which is really something that's so Paris. It's a very Parisian thing. The A lot of the pastry shops and, of course, the hotels, uh, who all have their own in-house pastry teams, in the end of August, which I know is bizarre, and beginning of September, they will host press days for these collections for wintertime, often highlighting the Bouche de Noël. So a lot of times journalists, press, magazines, and a few lucky pastry lovers like me get invited to these gorgeous events. And it's really exciting to go in and see what everybody's done for the coming year. And it really is like a pastry fashion show. It's like 
here's the collection for winter, for winter 2023. This is the theme. This is what we're going to do. When uh, last year, I think it was that Maxime Frederic, who is one of my favorite pastry chefs in Paris, he was formerly at the Georges Saint Hotel and now currently at Le Cheval Blanc. He created this rocking horse, Bouche de Noël, as you mentioned. And I remember going into the the room and seeing it. And I'm like, where's the Bouche de Noël? I don't see it. And it was like, no, that's it. It's this giant chocolate rocking horse. And underneath the rocking horse was the actual cake sitting sort of like underneath the horse. So that's... The- was the horse edible when it was the horse uh, just a decoration? Yes. Wow. No, the horse was completely edible. And then the actual cake or pastry was underneath the rocking horse. And I think uh, one year there was another pastry chef who made a giant hot air balloon or Mont Gaufier uh, that was all chocolate. And that was a Bouche de Noël, for example. You have cubes, you have, like you said, houses or palaces that are called the Bouche de Noël. One year a pastry chef did a collection of flowers where it was a giant bouquet of flowers and that was the Bouche de Noël. So I think that it has... Definitely, there seems to be no sort of like limit to what design a pastry chef can do and then call it the Bouche de Noël for that year. But yes, going back to whether or not they are, uh, I think purists, definitely, even I myself, who, you know, have made, I think one year I did uh, with a friend, I did this collaboration about how to throw a Christmas, a French Christmas party with French panache or French style. And I was tasked with creating a Bouche de Noël for that uh, sort of photo shoot. And I decided to do a cube shape, which wasn't even that far off from a log. And I got people commenting like, that's not a Bouche de Noël. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And so, yes, I think opinions run high on what constitutes a classic Bouche de Noël. However, I am definitely way more open-minded and I absolutely love to see how extraordinarily creative the pastry chefs get at each year and what they're going to show. I guess at the end of the day, it's not so much the form, as you said before, it's the flavour and the taste and how, you know, how that works ultimately that counts, doesn't it? But how it-, it does. And- it look it needs to look good, but it, ultimately it's got to taste good, right? Yeah, and I think the this 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 other element that I think is important here in France specifically is, of course, this idea of spectacle and sort of it's Christmas. There's this; it's going to be the centerpiece of you know the table when it comes to dessert, and I think that a lot of the, the chefs are trying to create sort of this magic moment when the cake comes out. So of course being so over the top with some of these uh, designs, it elicits this really wow factor. And of course, we can't forget that we're living in this age of Instagram and videos and photographs where people want to share what they're eating. And so of course, the more sort of outlandish and over the top creations, people are going to be excited to video and photograph and And that also extends to kind of some of the flavors that we're seeing in the contemporary Bouche de Noëls here. Like there's lots of, you know, yuzu and mango and tropical flavors. And I think one year a chef, pastry chef, did something with chocolate and chili powder, which is not an unusual combination. If we think about like Mexican hot chocolate, there's, you know, that's classic. So I think maybe he was inspired by that. And he did this beautiful chocolate Christmas star that was filled with this chili uh, 
chili, pimento, kind of espalette, dark chocolate. And it was filled with this like creme crew, like a raw milk cream inside. So very kind of pushing the envelope in terms of like the flavors being very sophisticated, I would say, and maybe wouldn't interestingly appeal to kids, but more to adults. But isn't it really more of an, an adult dessert? Some of these creations and some of the flavors that you've just talked about, surely they're aimed more at adults than kids. I think so. I mean, I, it's 100% correct that like when I've tasted some of these new contemporary versions that they're putting out every year, the flavors are very sophisticated. And I always wonder like, well, this doesn't seem like it's pandering to kids, unlike some of the simpler flavors, like I mentioned early on, like considered what's considered more classic, which is like a whipped cream chocolate spring roll type cake covered in maybe chocolate ganache, like we talked about. Um, Because ganache is still a popular uh, topping for the cake. So that, I think, seems like, you know, basically the flavor of a chocolate cupcake, (laughs) if you will. And so that I could see being really popular and fun with kids. But yeah, some of these more modern flavor combinations definitely seem to be specifically designed to please adults, the adult palate. What would you bring to the season's virtual potluck feast? Ooh, well, I think for a potluck, and since the theme being chocolate, I would probably bring a beautiful platter of mendiants, which I know, I'm a fan. And there's a recipe (laughs) for that in your book as well. And there is a recipe (laughs) for that in my book. Yes. Nice circling back to Sweet Paris. It is in the FET chapter of my book for parties. And so I think that's a perfect potluck sort of festive dish to bring. One, they're extremely fun to make. And I love that you can put your own toppings on them, anything that you fancy. Traditionally, mendiants are, you know, dried nuts and candied fruits. So figs and dried apricots and lovely hazelnuts or pistachio pieces. And they're absolutely lovely. They're just these little chocolate jewels and sparkle. I think a platter of them would look so festive on a table with a roaring fire. Um, You can choose your chocolate percentage. I'm probably team 72%. I think that mendiants are also traditionally eaten around the holidays at Christmas time for the new year. So go perfectly as either a starter, a little amuse-bouche with, you know, a little glass of champagne or even like perfect at the end of a meal as just a little sweet bite yeah that's what I like at the end of a meal a little sweet bite I love petit fours when I go to restaurants I'd far rather skip dessert and just have petit fours with my cup of tea or coffee or whatever that's my favorite favorite part of going to like uh a very elegant meal in in Paris is the end of the meal when they bring the little mignardies they call them which are the little tiny you know Usually it's like a pâte de fruit or fruit oh, jelly. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the best. A little piece of chocolate, maybe a little piece of like nougat on the on the plate as well. What are you up to next? Have you got any other books on the horizon? So actually, I am working on book proposal number two. It has not been picked up yet, but I'm currently chugging away. Thank you so much. That has been absolutely fabulous. You've been amazing. Thank you so much, Sam. It was a pleasure. Hopefully you're feeling suitably inspired now to make your own Yule Log this year. I think I'll keep mine simple, although I do like the idea of Frank's white chocolate and cassis version. 
His book Sweet Paris is packed with mouth-watering seasonal bakes and is a perfect present for any baking fans out there. Likewise, my own book, The Philosophy of Chocolate, makes a great stocking filler for the chocoholic in your life. If I get really stuck with rolling my boosh this year, I can always channel Fanny Craddock, who was never short on advice when it comes to Christmas prep. Do check out the show notes for links to some of Fanny's best Christmas moments. You can also find out more about Frank's Cakes and Workshops on his website or follow him on Instagram at CakeBoyParis. You'll find links to his book, Sweet Paris, and other useful sources mentioned in this episode in the show notes. If you'd like to find out more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com, where you will find details on my books on gingerbread, saffron and chocolate, as well as the forthcoming events I am speaking at. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which includes recipes and more detailed notes from the show. If you have any questions relating to this season's theme, you can leave a comment in the chat section on the Come To Be Hungry Substack page or tag me on social media. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on Instagram, threads or Twitter at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It really will help other listeners discover Come To Be Hungry. That's it for this year, but I'll be back in 2024 with more chocolatey podcasts. Until then, have a wonderful Christmas and Happy New Year. This podcast was written, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by Zapsplat and Jess Smith. <laughs>